Hello and welcome to today's Manhattan Project meeting of the LaRouche Organization for January 1st, 2022. This is our New Year's message to the world. We want to start by reading to you a statement from Helga Sepp LaRouche, founder of the Schiller Institute and wife of the late economist and statesman Lyndon LaRouche. This coming year is going to be one in which a lot of very crucial strategic issues will come to a head where humanity is being confronted with choosing a path, either a path to solutions which will bring mankind into a new paradigm or a path to hell. That is why I want to officially declare 2022 the year of my late husband, Lyndon LaRouche, because it is his 100th birthday. There is no more adequate way to celebrate this great man and the incredible richness of the works he had produced than to declare 2022 the year of Lyndon LaRouche. I already can promise that we will conduct many meetings, conferences, and seminars. We will publish the second volume of his collected works by the LaRouche Legacy Foundation. We will do everything possible so that the solution which Lyndon LaRouche offered to the strategic situation, to the economic crisis, to the cultural crisis, that these solutions will be on the table for every responsible government and parliament around the world to consider. I think this, that this will be a very fruitful endeavor, <clears throat> so I invite all of you to join with us in the celebration of Lyndon LaRouche for the entire year. Now, one of the reasons we're going to want to do that it has to do with the present strategic circumstance that the nation faces. But there's something that was uncanny and peculiar about LaRouche. And to demonstrate rather than discuss what that was, we're going to show you an excerpt which is from 2013 from a uh, meeting that was held in which Lyndon LaRouche was supporting a candidate for governor of New Jersey, Diane Sayre. And uh, the reason we're going to show it to you is because it's actually exactly what should be the New Year's message for today for direction for the United States at a time when the United States has lost its direction, uh, particularly when it comes to matters of physical economy. Um, this is reflected in the peculiar narrative around climate change. Uh, it's re reflected in other ways in terms of the way in which political parties are seen. And, I, and I'll just note that one of the things that you'll hear is his, uh, I think, appropriately dismissive tone toward the leading proponents or representatives of the Democratic and Republican parties in the form of Barack Obama at that time, president of the United States, and also the Bush family, which he will, I believe, reference in this in this uh, excerpt as well. Uh, but that's not why we're showing it. We're showing it because actually what he's about to outline is the appropriate measure that should be taken at this time by the United States uh, as a program to resolve some of the problems, real and imagined, that face the U.S. economy. And that was the quality of Lyndon LaRouche's ability to be prescient, to some, somehow come up with a solution even years later, which became comes appropriate exactly at this moment. And so we'll show this excerpt and then we'll uh, go to our uh, primary presentation, which we got given by Harley Schlanger. We have a new opportunity, which we have to seize. There are opportunities involving other nations, major nations, Russia, China, India, so forth, uh, and that sort of thing. But there are also the things that we could do. We are on the verge of the capability 
with certain changes in our political structure right now, to launch a thermonuclear fusion program, which would change the surface of this earth and beyond. That it will take us probably a dozen years or so to get a thermonuclear fusion program going on. But as we know in many of these processes in past, that when you get something started and you keep it going, is far different than waiting for the opportunity to bring it on. So what we have to do now is commit ourselves to bringing on what must be brought on in terms of such things as thermonuclear fusion. With, with the opportunity to describe it summarily, is we can use the uh, technologies at our beck. We can use these technologies in such a way as to create a new system of economy. And it's time to do that. If we get rid of some of the problems we have, we typified by Obama, but also people who weren't before him. In that case, we have a new opening for the United States, not just the United States, but the world. Now, what I'm working on is the fact that what we need is to combine the idea of a water system for the United States, particularly from the Mississippi River on westward, but actually carrying that through thermonuclear fusion, they're carrying that across the Pacific Ocean into Asia itself. And this kind of program, within a dozen years, could be, re could be realized. And this kind of action, this kind of volitional action, is exactly what we need. And I, I say that the evidence is that the solution is possible and it's highly recommended. We can get out of the, you know, the doghouse that we've been living in for too long. We can realize that we have the ability in co coordinated efforts to bring on that change, to establish the basis for a thermonuclear uh, fusion program which is the solution for the entire Pacific region, it's a solution for all the United States west of the Mississippi River, and similarly. And these things are there for us. But the key thing is you have to understand that those potentials exist. Because, only, because it's only through our concerted efforts that what is potential can be made real. And that's my essential message. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Yes, well, the point is, in life, we, we all know that we're all going to die, eventually. So the question is, what is your purpose in living? And that's how you should have to define your life, if you want to have a successful estimation of what you should be doing. And th therefore, we, we are in a situation where we have to actually take certain measures of improvement. This thermonuclear fusion idea is, is typical of that. But they stuck me in prison, but they didn't really kill me. And I have not been un disabled in doing what I was doing beforehand. The, the difficulties have been thrown in my way, but you expect difficulties in life. Well, I was guilty of nothing, but the, the ha powers that would be associated with the Bush family, for example, who's been my enemy for a very long time, getting with the Prescott Bush who uh, backed Hitler. And that's the Bush family. It's with a Hitler commitment tradition. No wonder I had problems with these characters. I was working against the Hitler group, but it wasn't just Hitler. It was this whole crowd, the, the Anglo-Dutch crowd, which was doing these things, including running Hitler. So therefore, when you're in life, you can't gamble that you personally are going to be enabled 
to create the action which is necessary for mankind. What you have to concern yourself with is what it is you must commit yourself to and with what form and what, what cap capability. And so, so they throw me into prison, so what? It can happen to anyone in almost any country, things like that. But the key thing is don't give in, don't collapse, fight, but learn how to fight intelligently and to a to proper mission. Fighting for yourself is sometimes the most foolish thing you can do because you can accomplish more by taking the same power and using it for other purposes. And that's my situation. Look, I'm 91 years of age. That's not exactly a ripe youth, you know what you say? But therefore, I, my purpose in life is based on what I can help to create to happen. And all wise people who have really become wise don't depend upon their own life as such. They depend upon what their life in process can contribute to mankind. And I think that's the truth of mankind. And it's the truth that mankind must find in themselves. Otherwise, they will lack the strength to deal with the great menaces which can hit humanity and, and have before. And that's my view. You have to take leadership to affect what is necessary for mankind. And once you deviate from that ob objective, particularly in a conflict that I've gone through, you lose. You lose because you threw yourself away. The mission is that you're going to die anyway, but you want to accomplish something by having lived. And that's what you must fight for. Because when people start to fight only for themselves, of how can I solve my problem, they lose. It's when they find themselves in solidarity with other people to bring about a common end for the benefit of mankind. Then you become a powerful force. That's what I believe, that's what I do, that's the way I act. And that is exactly what Americans need to believe, do, and act. And that's exactly why we're starting off this year talking about the year of Lyndon LaRouche, given the crises that we face. Now, to discuss both the crises and the resolution of those crises, as Lynn himself talked about it, and also as we are moving in various ways around the planet at this point, is LaRouche spokesman Harley Schlanger. Harley, Happy New Year. Glad to see you. Take it away. A happy New Year to you, Dennis, and to everyone joining us on this broadcast. I want to go through this question in a little detail of what it means that 2022 should be the year of LaRouche to provide an organizing perspective based on the incredible treasury that we have available to us based on the life's work of Lyndon LaRouche. Now, this year, this new year, follows an incredibly tumultuous year in which not only were the crises that were there at the beginning of the year not resolved, but in many cases, as we come into this new year, they're worse. We're in worse shape. But at the same time, because of that, we have a potential to actually resolve them, provided we listen to what Lynn said at the end of that address we just heard, that we dedicate ourselves to acting not for our own security, but from the standpoint that our best hope of surviving this year is to survive as a human species by taking on the source of the evil, knowing who the enemy is, and not getting distracted by the psychological warfare that's being run to divide us and, and cause us to fight each other. 
Now, when we talk about a tumultuous year of deepening crises, uh, let's just start with the three most immediate dangers. One is the pandemic, which is still with us and in many ways, uh, the, despite the mixed signals so far from Omicron, uh, could worsen at any point. We, governments have not yet figured out how to deal with this effectively. And as a result, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of distraction and disorientation. The, the second crisis is the growing recognition around the hyperinflationary collapse of the physical economy in most of the world. Now, it's not collapsing in much of Eurasia, largely because of the success of China. But in the rest of the world, we're seeing a, an inflation in energy, an inflation in food, a disintegration of physical production, uh, an, an overall systemic collapse. And it's a collapse of the physical economy. There's still plenty of money out there. If you're a billionaire, you can always go and and queue up at the Federal Reserve through your favorite banks. And if you're a billionaire, you'll have access to, to cash uh, to buy whatever speculative instrument you're interested in. At the same time, in order to sustain that system, which is, by the way, as I said, collapsing, the powers that be have introduced the Green New Deal, uh, which is a Malthusian anti-growth policy, which could reduce the world's population more dramatically than, than anything but a nuclear war. And secondly, the Great Reset. So you have this economic, physical economic crisis. And the third crisis is the strategic crisis. Now, the uniqueness of LaRouche's approach is to show how these crises are interrelated. And they're interrelated both in terms of the causes and the personalities who are driving the policies, who have the intent to use these crises, or in some cases to provoke these crises, for the intentions that they have to increase their own power and to carry out their utopian policies for a world government. Now, just as an example, the pandemic has been made worse by the neoliberal economic policies, including the privatization of healthcare, uh, and the continuation of uh, endemic poverty worldwide, so that there's not a solution. That, as Helga Zeplerouche has emphasized, we must move to a, a modern healthcare system in every country if we're going to be able to deal with this pandemic and those to come. Now, at the same time, this shows that the health system is related to the economic collapse. There are whole nations that don't have adequate electricity, don't have clean water, don't have adequate transportation. Were they to get vaccines, they don't have refrigeration systems to protect them. So we're dealing with an interrelated crisis, but this interrelationship goes further because it's the economic factors that play into the strategic crisis. If you look at the period since the end of World War II, as the unfinished business of, of the American Revolution, that Franklin Roosevelt had an idea that at the end of World War II, the American system would predominate, not as an imperial hegemonic power, but as a capability for every nation in the world to adopt a kind of Republican constitutional system 
of credit, in which credit would be controlled not by billionaires, not by a handful of private banks, but by sovereign governments, sovereign nation states that would act together in fair trade to build the physical economy of each of their nations. That was Franklin Roosevelt's idea of a post-colonial world. It was never realized because Franklin Roosevelt died before he had an opportunity to implement it. And the British in the form of Winston Churchill moved in and convinced Harry Truman, who was very frightened, that the United States and the British must reestablish the empire that Franklin Roosevelt had hoped would have been ended by the disasters and catastrophes of World War II. Instead, we went into a new division of the world between two empires, the Western transatlantic governments, especially under the direction of the city of London and the United States with its Wall Street allies of the city of London on one side and building NATO and then later the European Union. And the other side was the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. <clears throat> and this led to the Cold War and this continued until the collapse of the Soviet Union between 1989 and 1991. I don't know if people know this, but it was actually just 30 years ago, uh, December 25th, 1991, that the hammer and sickle came down on the Kremlin for the last time, that the Soviet Union ceased to exist just 30 years ago. But what happened at that point? There was a tremendous opportunity for a new security architecture for the world based on a common commitment to economic development. That's what Lyndon LaRouche had been working towards, and I'll review some of that in a moment. The idea was that we could have the Western world and the Eurasian world cooperating on developments around science and technology, especially at the frontiers of technology with space with nuclear fusion, and that countries could adopt a Hamiltonian bank, banking system, credit system, to facilitate the investments that are necessary in both infrastructure, education, and uh, physical economy that would allow nations to work together in that kind of collaboration. Instead, we had the emergence of a neoconservative, neoliberal new empire, which at times was called the uh, unipolar world, the project for a new American century, typified by the neocons who came to power in the George W. Bush administration. But they were already there before that. And so as I review some of these developments in U.S.-Russian relations, which have brought us to through 30 years of provocations from the West, 30 years of betrayal of promises made at the time of the collapse of the Soviet empire, we can see why it is that President Putin of Russia is insistent that a new security architecture must be adopted with legally binding written treaties that will allow for mutual security of all nations, of all sovereign nations, because that's what LaRouche had insisted on from the beginnings of this uh, modern period going back to the 60s and early 70s. 
I just want to give you a couple of, of examples of some nodal points in this from the, the work that was done by Lyndon LaRouche in particular. Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, when he created what's now known as the LaRouche Organization, uh, he had two targets for opposition. And by opposition, I mean he opposed them, but they increasingly targeted him for elimination. And that is the Neo-Malthusians around the Club of Rome, an oligarchical association of European and, and U.S. Uh, aristocracy, committed to an anti-science, anti-technology, global dictatorship. And along with that was the assertion that the Western military power would ensure that this system would stay in place. Now, two of the key people in, in promoting this were Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski, who operated on behalf of this oligarchy. But there are many, many more. Those were two faces. But behind them, when we talk about oligarchs, we're talking about the aristocracy of Europe, the old noble families, some of whom go back to Roman times, to the Venetian Empire to the emergence of the modern British Empire coming out of the Netherlands and Venice moving north to, to Amsterdam and then taking over England in 1688. This is the imperial faction which produced the John Locke's and the, the Hobbes, the, those who believe that man is an animal and that the strongest should rule, the law of the jungle, as Hobbes put it the rule, the, the battle of one against all, that that's their view of civilization. And that became the dominant feature over many years, including struggle within England for a period of time. Look at the works of Marlowe and Shakespeare, for example, of Percy Shelley. There was opposition to this within England. But the dominant force eventually of the British East India Company imposed the oligarchical view of man as part of government through their trading policies, which included slavery, which included the uh, what we would call today technological apartheid, that is keeping science and technology out of the hands of the colonial peoples, and the use of war, constant use of war, creation of an enemy image, so that nations would not be able to act on the Westphalian principle of common interests and common humanity but instead would see every other nation and the advance of every other nation as a threat to the British Empire. Now, the great break with that was the American Revolution. And this became the key to understanding Lyndon LaRouche, that his was not just a flag-waving, cheerleading of all the great things of America, but the greatest thing of America, the Republican constitutional system, and its, its origins from the Socratic and Platonic Greek tradition through the European Renaissance and then through the founding fathers who were versed in these classical traditions and brought them into the Constitution of the, de the debate of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That's where the concept of general welfare comes from. Now, when you, you look at that, and then look at what was happening in the 70s, especially with the 1971 order by Nixon on August 15th 
to break up what was left of Franklin Roosevelt's Bretton Woods system, remove the dollar, the backing of the dollar as a gold reserve, the orientation toward a floating exchange rate system, which essentially became the basis of a speculative system, and the intent, intent to impose that on every single nation, including the developing sector nations, who were forced to go to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to have their economic policies approved before they could get a, a penny of credit. This was why this is this is why we still have great poverty in whole sections of the world today. That was imposed by the City of London and backed militarily by the United States and NATO. And that was the whole policy of Kissinger with the National Security Study Memo 200 in which he said that the United States should have policies to reduce population growth in a number of the poorer countries of Africa and Asia and Latin America. That was the strategic policy of Brzezinski, who used British working papers from the geopoliticians such as Bernard Lewis to come up with the idea of getting the United States involved in a war in Central Asia in 1979 where the U.S. became involved in, in suckering the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and then built up what became the uh, jihadist forces in Afghanistan during the 80s to fight against the Soviet Union. Now, it was during that time there was a real crisis facing the, the world. The Soviet Union had nuclear weapons, advanced nuclear weapons. So did the United States. A few other countries did also. But the question of what would happen in Europe, would the United States bring these weapons into Europe? Would the Soviets uh, put nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe? And the confrontation became extremely intense. In the late 1970s, Lyndon LaRouche wrote a paper, I think it was in 1977, which was the beginning of a shift away from the danger of mutual and assured destruction, the policy of Kissinger, into mutually assured survival. He wrote a pamphlet called Sputnik of the 70s, the science behind the Soviet's beam weapon. And this became the basis of an organizing campaign by our membership all over the world to bring about a joint deployment of new anti-missile defense systems, which were designed by Lyndon LaRouche. At the same time, you had people such as Edward Teller and others who were working on these policies. And it came to the attention of then President Ronald Reagan, who brought Lyndon LaRouche in to negotiate with the Russians, with the Soviets, around this idea. And LaRouche wrote dozens of papers about this, some of which were public, many of which were not. He was involved in negotiations, and he was reporting back to the National Security Council of, of, about his discussions. Now, tragically, at that time, Yuri Andropov, and then later Gorbachev, rejected LaRouche's and Reagan's proposal. And the reason was that the at that time, the Soviet empire believed its only hope to combat the West was to have a crash military buildup and that if the West invested in these new technologies, 
it would significantly outstrip whatever the Soviets could do, and they would lose whatever margin they had were they to get into a war. LaRouche's idea was not that we would have better weapon systems, but we would share them, and that we would use the science that went into it in nuclear physics and laser technologies and particle beams and, and similar technologies, as well as in a collaborative space program, we could use these technologies to launch a new scientific and economic revolution that could be to benefit all countries, including those who were our adversaries in the Soviet empire. When the Russians rejected this, LaRouche forecast in 1984 that the Soviet Union would collapse within five years. It actually took a little bit longer, but at that time, no one else was saying anything like that. Later in 1988, he gave a speech in Berlin, and I remember the date because it's my birthday, October 12th, and he said that we will soon see a unification of the city of Berlin as the capital of a unified Germany. At the time, people said, this is more of LaRouche's craziness. Well, what happened? A little more than a year later, the Berlin Wall came down. And three years later, the Soviet Union came down. Now, this is where the current crisis escalates. It was a time where had people listened to LaRouche, we could have put an end to this whole post-World War II confrontation. The idea that LaRouche had was that the United States could participate in an economic development program in the Eastern European countries and Russia. Investment in agriculture, investment in infrastructure, stemming from the, the uh, industrial triangle of Paris, Berlin, and Vienna, that within that area you had the most advanced technologies in Europe, that you could extend spiral arms of, of rail and, and high-speed systems to bring about a, a rapid upgrading of the economies of those countries, which were in pretty bad shape, although they did have science and they did have skilled workforce. Instead, oh, and, and I should add that there was at least on some level an intention to have a peaceful uh, settlement of the Cold War. At least that was apparently the case when James Baker in February 1990 told the Russians that the, uh, there would be not one inch eastward expansion of NATO. And this was related to Russia accepting the unification of Germany and dismantling the weapon systems that were throughout Eastern Europe and allowing the Warsaw Pact to, to be put to an end. Implicitly, and maybe even explicitly, there were agreements that Russia could be brought into NATO or that NATO could be abandoned, could be shut down, because what was the purpose of NATO? It was to protect Western Europe from potential of Soviet aggression. But from that time forward, and we have a chronology that we've developed of this, which is too detailed right now for me to go through in, in just this overview, but it's available through our publications, through the Executive Intelligence Review and others, that goes through how every step of the way for the last 30 years, instead of abiding by that spoken agreement, that handshake agreement between James Baker 
and Shevardnadze, the, the Russian foreign minister, and Gorbachev. Instead, the United States carried out a policy that was destructive towards Russia based on the idea of the neoconservative movement of the sole superpower, that the United States was the sole superpower, the unipolar power, and has the right to dictate to the rest of the world what the policy should be. This is what you hear today when you, you see the junior varsity cheerleaders for this policy, Blinken and Sullivan, out there talking about the rules-based order. They're, these are not rules. The, the actual rules or the lawful basis for international relations is in the UN Charter, is in a whole series of treaty agreements. The idea of the rules-based order is we set the rules and you listen, and that's, that's how it's going to work. Now, when Russia was weak, these rules included the imposition of shock therapy inside Russia. Instead of LaRouche's idea of taking advantage of certain capabilities that existed in Russia, of science and technology, we went in and formed alliances with oligarchs to loot the country. Very famous figures were involved in this. Jeffrey Sachs, who was one of the economists who was sent out to do this, who is now one of the gurus of the Green Revolution. Uh, LaRouche at the time said that bringing in Jeffrey Sachs into Russia to supposedly have an economic policy just proves that there's no such thing as safe Sachs. Sachs's policy reduced the Russian economy by more than a third. The shock therapy policy was a demographic catastrophe for Russia. And at the same time, there was nibbling away at the borders of Russia uh, over a period of time. And we, we have a graphic to show this. The, or the, the contraction of Russia as a continued policy of NATO expansion. Jose, do you have those, those maps? What you can see from this is that these were the boundaries in 19, I, I can't see the, the figure, but in 1991, when the decision was, when it was said, we're not going to move NATO one inch eastward. You can see the dark blue is the, at that time, the Warsaw Pact. Next one, please. Now we see the expansion of NATO eastward. Next one, please. And now we see even further expansion. And in 2008, at a NATO summit in Bucharest, it was announced that eventually Ukraine and Georgia would be brought into NATO. Now, the importance of these two countries, and, and there's a lot that can be said about that, but the, the uh, let me just, just a second here. Oh, that if you look at the period from during the 90s, you see a, a contraction of Russia, a demographic collapse, economic collapse, which started to turn around when Vladimir Putin came in. It was actually under Primakov before Putin, but Putin came in in 1999, 2000. And among the things he did was insist that Russia would not just be a raw material producer, but that Russia needed a full set industrial economy. And it was not at the expense of the West or in competition with the West, but in cooperation. When 
the United States was attacked with the 9-11 terrorist assault, Putin was the first to call Bush and offer cooperation, anti-terror cooperation. And, and what did Bush do? He withdrew the United States from the anti-ballistic missile treaty and began the plans for putting anti-ballistic missile defense systems on the borders of Russia, supposedly to protect against Iran. So Putin made a counterproposal. Uh, Putin, and this was in 2007, Putin said, well, if you really want to counter weapon systems in Iran, how about working with us to put up systems in the Black Sea area and in the Transcaucus Mountains, which would be most adjacent to Iran? That, of course, was rejected. And we've continued to move with these ABM systems as NATO forces have been moving eastward. In 2004, there was the regime change Orange Revolution attempt in Ukraine, which was then followed up by the full coup in February 2014, which was funded and run by networks, including the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a neoconservative outfit, and George Soros, who is portrayed as a liberal, but is really just a, a part of this globalist cabal which is insistent that there be only one empire and that empire be centered in the city of London. There's more to this chronology that, that we could go through and maybe we can take some of it up in the, in the discussion session. But the key point is there was a desire to destroy Russia as a sovereign nation, to turn it into a raw material producer, which had no ability to stand on its own. Now, what, if, if you think about this, and then think about what LaRouche was proposing during all this time, LaRouche was proposing a collaboration that the United States work with Russian scientists, that the United States work to develop means of, of extending the interrelationship between Europe and Asia. But this is where we find the ultimate confrontation. If you go back to what I said earlier about the British East India Company, the importance of the uh, imperial powers of the city of London, their doctrine, the geopolitical doctrine, is based on the idea that there can never be an alliance between nations of Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and Eurasia. But what we've seen emerging in this period, even as the U.S. is continuing this confrontational policy with Russia, is that Russia is working now with China, with India. We see the Asian nations uh, advancing, not in competition or against the West, because the West was very much involved, for example, in the, the development of China. So why is it that we now have this degree of confrontation? Well, what we've seen in, in the, the recent weeks, just to bring it up to date, or I should say in, in 2021, was as Russia and China work more closely together, the NATO forces continued to use Ukraine as a weapon against Russia, uh, as a placement for weapons. The Black Sea as an arena of competition, the Baltic, the reconnaissance aircraft that now fly within a minute or two of the Russian border, the 
possibility of new weapon systems going into Ukraine, even as weapon systems are going into the Baltic states. And at a certain point, Putin said, this must stop. He said, Russia's security is his primary concern. And he said, it's essential that for this to, to uh, for security to take place, you have to stop encroaching on the borders of Russia and using Ukraine as a weapon to do that. And what Putin proposed, and this has been a central feature of Russian strategic policy for the last, um, for the most of the year, is two things. One is a meeting of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council to work together to coordinate strategic policy. But then an agreement, a new series of legally binding written treaties, which would oppose the idea of Ukraine and Georgia being brought into NATO, would oppose the idea of, of eastward expansion of NATO, and prevent the deployment of offensive weapon systems into Ukraine that would be within five to seven minutes of being able to strike Moscow. Because part of the NATO policy is to provide nuclear-capable bombers that would be stationed in Ukraine were Ukraine to become a member of NATO or to have a further integration of that. And Putin drew the line at that. He said, that's a red line. On December 7th, that was part of the discussion between Putin and Biden. Now, the positive news is that on some level, this is registering maybe with Biden, with some of the people around him, who are aware of the fact that you have crazies in Ukraine and the Kiev government that were part of the Maidan coup in 2014, who are ethnic cleansers, who are neo-Nazis, who are themselves committed to driving all non-so-called Ukrainians out of Ukraine, especially Russians. But these are the forces of the Azov Battalion and others who traced their lineage to the Ukrainian SS that worked with the Nazis during World War II. Given what was done to Russia in World War II, the sacrifices the Russian people made in repelling the Nazi invasion and eventually taking a lead effort in defeating the Nazis, what Putin has said is that Russia has that memory as a very immediate one in the forefront of its mind when it sees the same networks being deployed in Ukraine on behalf of NATO against ethnic Russians. And that's where the idea of the red line comes from. And so on December 7th, Putin and Biden discussed this. There was another discussion two days ago. Now, what we're seeing from the West, and this is why the next weeks are so crucial and why your voice is so crucial and why it's important for you to understand how LaRouche addressed this problem. And we'll talk more about LaRouche's approach in the, in the question and answer session. But a top US official said the next four weeks will determine whether there's essentially war over Ukraine. Now Biden told Putin the US has no intention of fighting a war in Ukraine against Russia. But he said, if Russia should invade, that that would be a U.S. red line. The U.S. would then 
immediately enact very harsh punitive policies to the Russian economy, including possibly throwing the Russians out of the SWIFT system, which is the international uh, currency transaction system, which is necessary for trade. The threats have been made repeatedly against the Russians based on phony intelligence reports that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. But by making these reports and by promising the Ukrainians full support should Russia invade, you're creating a situation where the crazies in Ukraine may take it upon themselves to march into the Donbass region or launch drone attacks against the ethnic Russians there or in Crimea to trigger a Russian response with the expectation that that would bring NATO into the fight. Were that to happen, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and President Putin have both said Russia would react to defend its national security interests. So this is why we're on the edge of war. And one of the top officials of the Biden administration, some people think it was Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said that the next four weeks, now it's three weeks, would determine the outcome. Well, there are three meetings coming up on January 9th and 10th. These uh, Strategic Stability Council will be meeting the Russians in the United States. That'll be in Geneva. Uh, there'll be another meeting of Russia and NATO three days later, or two days later, and then on January 13th, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe will meet to discuss the Ukraine situation. These are opportunities. But the question, and I come back to the year of LaRouche to address this, the question of war and peace is not a cessation of military hostility or a pledge that we won't fire first. The key to peace is economic development. And this has always been central to Lyndon LaRouche's work. The dozens of uh, regional economic uh, projects that he supported, that he proposed, that he organized for, the Kra Canal in Thailand, the second Panama Canal, uh, the, Indi, the Indian Ganges Brahmaputra Basin policy, the Nawapa policy that you heard him talking about before, that by marshalling a nation's resources through a Hamiltonian credit system to develop the capability of its science and technology sectors and the education sector to develop the skilled workforce that can take these new technologies and apply them to increase productivity for all. That's central to LaRouche's idea of advancing the potential relative population density of humanity as a whole and each sovereign nation state as part of humanity. That has always been explicit in his critiques and attacks against the Malthusians, the Neo-Malthusians, the zero growthers, the phony scientists who came up with such concepts as climate change, global warming, and, and so on. So as we go into this new year, if you reflect on this situation of 30 years of betrayal of promises from the United States and the Western nations, the transatlantic countries to Russia. And look at what we've done instead of living up to those promises. Look at the endless warfare in the Middle East. Look at the coups, the regime change coup in Libya, 
the regime change coup in Ukraine, the Iraq invasion on completely false pretenses, the destruction of Syria. And then you look at the pullout of Afghanistan, where I think Biden does deserve credit for doing what Trump said he would do and never did. However, it was may have been bungled. The question now is, are we going to leave the Afghan people to die of starvation and uh, uh, cold uh, because we want to punish the Taliban? Or shall we take up this message of LaRouche of development is the name of peace? And so that's what we have as a perspective for 2022. Take the LaRouche policy, both in terms of identifying what the enemy is and what the enemy intends to do. And by enemy, we mean the specific oligarchic interests centered around groups such as the Davos uh, World Economic Forum, such as the Atlantic Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, Chatham House, and their arms that go into the corporate cartels. And they're funded, by the way, by the corporate cartels. Their connections to the defense sector and the security uh, uh, Silicon Valley forces. That's the enemy. And we know what their intent is with the Great Reset and the Green New Deal. Now, one final note on this, on the question of why these people view Russia and China as the enemy. There was something that may have escaped your notice last week. The United Nations was trying to establish, the United Nations was trying to establish a kind of global climate police to carry out the policies of the Green New Deal. This was vetoed by Russia and China in the Security Council. The Russians and the Chinese are not interested in the Great Reset because they don't want central bankers to have a global dictatorship to control credit and spending policy. They're committed to the idea of sovereign nations making decisions and non-interference in the affairs of sovereign nations. Unfortunately, since the time of, of Richard Nixon and virtually every administration since then, the United States has violated that principle of Westphalia. The United States has been the first nation, egged on always by the British, has been the first nation to interfere in, in the affairs of other nations. And when those nations didn't accept the orders of the rule-based order, they were subjected to economic warfare and actual physical destruction of warfare. That's what must end. And that's why we have to make 2022 the year of Lyndon LaRouche. Thank you, Harley. We are going to have all kinds of things to discuss. There's a, several, a few questions that we have already. And uh, before we go to those, I want to just uh, say two things about this question for people about the year of Lyndon LaRouche. There are many ways in which you can help. First of all, of course, there is the release of the um, writings of Lyndon LaRouche with two volumes. We have the first volume that has been released and is already available and the second volume, which will be coming out shortly. But that's a very limited way of sort of stating what the idea is. Uh, take, for example, what has been said already about this issue of thermonuclear fusion. Uh, there are breakthroughs that have just occurred in both in China and also a review of a breakthrough made uh, earlier at Lawrence Livermore, which was said to achieve about a 70 percent uh, reproduction of energy over against the energy that, put, went, that was put in 
but actually uh, upon review of that breakthrough, uh, which was uh, made by what is not even a full fusion program, turns out that we actually achieved uh, a break-even uh, in that. And this is, of course, one of the things that is a pivotal uh, milestone in, in fusion in terms of its viability. Uh, of course, for many, many years, there's been a propaganda campaign against thermonuclear fusion and against thermonuclear fission, for that matter. Uh, that's why those of us who went through that period of 1974, when Lyndon LaRouche founded the Fusion Energy Foundation, uh, until um, 1987, when that organization was forcibly shut down by the United States government uh, in an illegal action or, or an unjust action, which was plausibly uh, legal at the moment. Uh, that's why we're not very impressed at all about any of the people that talk about climate change, because we know that it was entirely possible, uh, not only not only possible, but necessary to convert the United States economy between the period of 1974 and the year 2000 over a 25 year period to a, a nuclear and then thermonuclear power. We knew that that was completely not only possible, but the United States had already built 104 nuclear power plants. Um, and that was between the period of 1940, well, let's even say the 1955 or so, Well, you would say 1945, let's just say 30 years. Though that's not exactly right, but let's just take that. Over the 30-year period between, uh, uh, in which the United States built 104 nuclear power plants, compared that to the 30-year period between, well, well uh, 19, uh, 1978 and 2018, uh, which is 30 years. Uh, what do we build over that period? There are two or three plants built. Yet, we're supposed to take seriously the idea that people were seriously concerned, policymakers and others, about the carbon, carbon dioxide emissions as a threat to the planet. Now, anybody just looks at that and recognizes that there was a full-scale campaign against thermonuclear fission and thermonuclear fusion as well over that entire period of time, yet today it's being said that the issue of climate change is a critical, pivotal issue of national security and is now included in the worldwide strategic threat assessment of the United States as, as a serious matter, knows that what you're dealing with is a, is, a, uh, is a criminal policy cabal, which because of the suppression of Lyndon LaRouche and his organization was able to get away with now trying to propose things like $130 trillion being uh, uh, re redeployed in the, uh, in the uh, world economy and the economic fortunes of countries like Brazil and South Africa and so on being determined uh, by the same people that have always tried to determine them. And what you get is you have this sort of regrettable necessity doctrine among liberals in the United States and younger liberals and progressives who say, well, of course, you know, that's sort of an argument and it's too bad that it's being politicized because after all, you know, climate change is not a political issue. You know, it's just true. And, you know, we have to deal with it. And we never dealt with it because nobody understood what its importance was. Well, actually, all you had to do was to build nuclear power as we were doing. And you wouldn't have been discussing this in any case. Not that it's true, but if it were true, it would have been solved decades ago. And so when you look at the issue of Lyndon LaRouche and what's happened with him, I just wanted to, first of all, make it clear that the reason we talk about this being the year of Lyndon LaRouche is there's something very, very important 
to consider about the way in which this matter of nuclear power and thermonuclear power post-1945 was handled by intelligence agencies who did not want uh, the peaceful use of nuclear power to become the dominant characteristic of post-World War II life. Had that been the case, energy would have become too cheap to meter. Uh, and under that circumstance, because of the power of the United States, it would have dominated from the standpoint of industrial productivity, not from the standpoint of diplomacy, not from the standpoint of geopolitics, not from the standpoint of murderous wars, not from the standpoint of special operations, not from the standpoint of nuclear weapons. It would have dominated the globe as a friendly force, which would have been bringing people out of poverty in the way, like it or not, that the nation of China is doing today. People like to like to pay, throw things around, but the truth was that the United States was caused to not take that road, not take that initiative, particularly from the period of the mid-1970s until now, and a lot of that had to do with Lyndon LaRouche. There's another reason to talk about this, uh, because uh, Harley just described uh, LaRouche's role in the negotiations with the nation of the Soviet Union, um, uh, uh, with nations of the Soviet Union, uh, in the form of, of, of Moscow. Uh, during the period of the early 80s. Uh, and uh, just for purposes of giving an illustration of why this is so important, we're going to show you a couple of maps just to have something else in mind. It's not just the 100th anniversary of Lyndon LaRouche's birth. It's also was the case that it was 100 years ago, December 30th of uh, 1922, that the Soviet Union was started. I'm going to show you a map here, first of all, of what is marked as the Commonwealth of Independent States. We're going to show this to you so that you can get kind of a visual picture um, of, of something that's important to note. So if you see the states there in the colors, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, all of these were parts of the Soviet Union previously. Also Georgia, Armenia, Yerevan, so on. Then if you look out to the, to the left, to the west, um, and you see the nations of Ukraine, Belarus, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. Well, th well, those nations were also that I just named were also portions of the so of the uh, Soviet Union. Then to the west of that was the military uh, uh, organization, which was the counter to NATO, called the Warsaw Pact, among whose members were uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, also Albania. The Albania uh, left in 1968 and East Germany, so that the border of the Soviet Union and the buffer that was created into Germany has to be considered from the standpoint of what happened in the Second World War, in which Russia lost 27 million people. The only nation that had comparable losses in terms of people was the nation of China, uh, which was comparable or perhaps more losses. Um, and this is important to understand because the United States uh, did not lose anywhere near, yet lost hundreds of thousands of people and every life is precious. But the fact of the matter is that the Soviet Union lost 27 million people in an invasion called Operation Barbarossa, the largest invasion in human history, which came out of Germany. And so a lot of the concern, which should not be, uh, it, may, it, may, it may not be thought of as justified, but you have to understand, I try to get inside of the mindset of people was to have a border, a buffer, at two, two sets of nations deep, basically, the, the republics and then the Warsaw Pact. 
What Harley has discussed already is that all of that was taken down. Now you're at the border of the uh, of Russia itself. And what we're hearing is that Russia is being expansionist. Now, now we can have the map of Ukraine. I'd like to have that up because there's something particular that one has to understand concerning this issue. If you look there to the bottom of your screen where you see Crimea, you see two uh, bodies of water, the Sea of Azov and you see the Black Sea. The importance here is that warm water ports for Russia uh, are, uh, that's, where, that's where they are, right where you're looking there, where Crimea is. Uh, so one of the mo most famous <clears throat> battles, for example, of the, uh, of the uh, Second World War was the battle at Sevastopol, the very bottom of your screen. Then of course you see Yalta, where uh, in 1945, President Roosevelt met with Churchill and Stalin. So, so these areas are, uh, these are critical access points for, uh, for Russia, not only because, and I don't just mean this from a geostrategic standpoint, but it's important to understand that where you see Ukraine and you see that border, <clears throat> one other point should be made. When the Soviet Union was first born in 1922, uh, the nations that were the uh, members of that were Russia, which you see to your left of your screen. No, you don't need, I don't need that. Go stay with the map I have. With Russia, uh, Belarus, which you see to the north, uh, Ukraine, and what was called Transcaucasia, which uh, is basically uh, Georgia, um, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. That was the whole of the Soviet Union. <clears throat> Nothing else was in it. You know, it was, there was no Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and all that. They came slightly later. So, but Ukraine had been, in other words, fully incorporated. And we're talking about something that, as Harley said, ended 30 years ago, but was born 100 years ago. Now, if you start provoking in this area of the world where uh, one has to understand borders have shifted, not merely in terms of national borders, but imperial borders for many hundreds of years. You start talking about and making these shifts based on some geopolitical idea you have. That's not the way that these places work. They work culturally and they work particularly religiously. One has to understand that the Russian Orthodox Church is not the Greek Orthodox Church and it's certainly not the Catholic Church. It is a Christian confession, but is a very, very different nature. And the people who are in it think of themselves in a much, much different way. Uh, the notion that there's a Ukraine made up of only Ukrainians and a Russia made up of only Russians is not only historically absurd, but it, it doesn't it doesn't get at what the actual nature of the conflict is that we're looking at here. And so you have these hot dogs from the State Department who barely have read a few books or maybe they've read a few books, but they but but they don't know anything. They have no idea about the 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 blood uh, sacrifice, if you want to put it that way that happened in the Second World War, which Lyndon LaRouche and others of his generation fully appreciated, and Vladimir Putin, Putin fully appreciates. <clears throat> That's what's at issue here. And so the nuclear power, nuclear policy rather, nuclear power policy that the uh, Lyndon LaRouche particularly advocated, and that is often being discussed if one listens carefully uh, by Vladimir Putin or by Xi Jinping, uh, or others in terms of the peaceful deployment of nuclear power is an implicit and important strategic factor left out of uh, most analysis and discussion 
And therefore, people who claim to be Russia analysts or China hands and so on are completely incompetent to understand what the actual stakes are. This is important because this is a generational problem, uh, one of uh, that we have to be very sensitive to and understand in terms of the danger that faces us and the ability to invoke wise old men who understood this and who actually worked with Russia and with China and so on in various ways um, is, is of critical importance at this time in keeping the world alive. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole other matter uh, with respect to coronavirus and many other things that we may have a chance to talk with. And Harley may have a response to what I just said. We will have some questions. So Harley, let me just come back to you and see if there's anything you'd like to either add, correct, uh, or amplify. Well, yeah, there's one thing I'd like to add, which is a central feature of the year of LaRouche, which is that 2022 must be the year of the exoneration of Lyndon LaRouche. As I went through some of these chronology of LaRouche's intervention, what becomes obvious to anyone who knows from the inside what was done to LaRouche is that at every step as his authority was growing, as he became an international figure, known and discussed in, in Moscow, in Berlin, in Rome, uh, and the Indian government, he met with Indira Gandhi, uh, the uh, Turkish president with Lopez Portillo of Mexico, uh, very well known in Brazil and Argentina. As LaRouche was becoming an important figure internationally, the forces that are committed to the global bankers dictatorship, neo-Malthusian population reduction, saw LaRouche as their enemy. And for those people who are familiar in the last five years of the vilification of Donald Trump, uh, watch the vilification of Putin, even in some ways the vilification of Biden now uh, from the other side, if you had any idea of what was done against LaRouche, you would see that what was done in, in the recent period, the basis for that was the anti-LaRouche policy that goes back to the, the controllers of people like Kissinger and Brzezinski and included such people as William Weld, part of the Bush family network, former governor of, of Massachusetts, uh, who was one of the creators of the Get LaRouche Task Force, at least in terms of the Justice Department, and the actual deployment uh, against LaRouche in the Justice Department was done by the same networks that were running Russiagate, including the intelligence network, sections of the CIA, the FBI. Uh, there's, there's volumes of material of the FBI intervention against LaRouche. And so when you realize that this was not an internal matter to the United States, but a strategic matter, the question of, of Lyndon LaRouche and the treatment of Lyndon LaRouche by the American political system is one which is watched all over the world. And if, if they'll do this to one of their own, and, and what, what's LaRouche's, one of his crimes? It's the reinvigoration uh, of the idea of the American system of physical economy. So if someone who goes back to the founding fathers and the, the tradition that built the American Republic 
can be vilified and attacked, slandered, thrown in prison. His organization shut down, such as, as you mentioned, the Fusion Energy Foundation. Then why would one be surprised if those same networks are willing to starve millions of Afghan children, willing to starve the children of Yemen, willing to carry out unjust sanctions against any government that refuses to accept the rules of the so-called rules-based order. So the exoneration of LaRouche is not just a question of, of doing what's right and just for Lyndon LaRouche and, and his wife Helga, but for the United States, because the, the stain on the American justice system of the persecution of Lyndon LaRouche is an example to the world of why you can't trust the leaders of the United States. And unless the American people act to reverse that, we will, we're in danger of being the world's leading pariah nation. And as our system collapses, if we don't have LaRouche's policies, uh, we would be wise to, to not expect a hand from the rest of the world to help us. So we have to deal with this as a global strategic issue, the exoneration of Lyndon LaRouche. So I just wanted to add that to the uh, presentation from before. Sure, sure, very good. I have a question from Kynan for you uh, first, uh, Harley. And he says here, as Helga has said, the acceptance <clears throat> by the West of the legally binding guarantees proposed by Putin, which you may want to say something about also, is an absolute requirement toward peace and stability. As was demonstrated in the maps, NATO's presence has grown more and more since its founding, while Russia's has diminished significantly since the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. Assuming these agreements will be accepted by the West, what will need to occur afterwards to ensure no such crisis happens again? As Helga has insisted, the world needs a new security architecture. What will that look like? Uh, and then he has a second question, but I can I can wait if you want to take that one first, and then we'll go to the second. Let me let me take that one first. The the security guarantees that that Putin has insisted on are that there, the United States adhere at least at the present time to what was said in 1990: no further expansion of NATO eastward, which in this case means into Georgia and into Ukraine that Ukraine not be given membership. Now, there are some people who are saying, well, the reason Ukraine is not up for membership immediately is because of corruption uh, or because of a specific legal technicality, which is that a nation that has an internal uh, civil war or confrontation uh, is not eligible for NATO membership. There are a number of technical reasons, but the promise was made in Bucharest in 2008 and has been repeated by people like Blinken and uh, Avril Haines of, of the Director of National Intelligence and others, that we intend to give Ukraine NATO membership. So what Putin is saying is that must not occur. And secondly, weapon systems and, and military personnel of NATO must not be brought into Ukraine. And again, the point he's making is that one of the reasons Russia developed hypersonic weapons is because of the concern of what it would mean if you have advanced weapon systems in Ukraine that can reach Moscow in four to five minutes. So how would you address that? Well, if you sign the documents, 
that's a starting point. But you have to go further. Helga has, has called for the dissolution of NATO. NATO was set up as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization under a specific moment of time when there was a perceived danger that the Soviet Union might go beyond the Warsaw Pact and try to overrun Germany, France, uh, Austria, the rest of Europe. And therefore, NATO as a military alliance was necessary to show the Russians, to show the Soviets, that the Western countries would stand united against such an attack. Now, an attack like that never occurred, whether it was because of NATO or because the Soviets never intended to do it. You know, that's, that's something that can be debated. But at this point, the argument that Putin is about to invade Ukraine is the product of some diseased minds in the intelligence community who want to justify the continued expansion of NATO. Eliminate NATO. That's a, a, an important step. Now, if you do that and then move to some of the economic joint uh, enterprises, for example, the extended Troika, Russia, China, the United States, and Pakistan, engaging in the reconstruction of Afghanistan. That's one of the ways you build trust through working together in a common project, which is not just a humanitarian project, but in a sense, the United States owes it to those people. As do, you know, remember the Soviet Union was involved in inflicting some misery in Afghanistan as well, where well, the Russians are willing to pitch in. What about the United States? We're holding on to nine plus billion dollars of money that's owed to the Afghan people, the Afghan government, at a point at which there's no currency, the, the Afghan currency is being devalued, there's no reserves to buy food and fuel and medical supplies and so on. So working together on the, take Helga's proposal, Operation Ibn Sina, to, to develop a modern healthcare system in Afghanistan as a step towards a broader reconstruction program, extending the Belt and Road Initiative into Afghanistan and the United States, not seeing that as a Chinese act of aggression, but as an act of compassion and, and mutual benefit. Uh, rebuilding Syria, rebuilding Iraq, rebuilding Yemen, working together in those things, and then working together in the advancement of nuclear energy as a way of providing adequate electricity to every nation on the planet. And then, of course, we've already seen very good cooperation between the United States and Russia and space, extending that to all spacefaring nations to go out into the uh, beyond our atmosphere, go into Mars. Uh, we just had the James Webb telescope go up, space telescope, which gives us an opportunity to look into the vast expanses of our universe have scientists working together on those projects. That's the way you get beyond the present crisis. So it does require addressing the cause of the crisis, namely the expansion, uh, and I would say the imperial expansion of the transatlantic nations, because that's what NATO is. Similarly, the European Union. The European Union has no reason for existence except to extend the power of the global bankers dictatorship, the central bankers dictatorship over all of Europe, including Eastern Europe. China has offered to come in, for example, to 
work with Romania, Bulgaria, other countries to develop high-speed rail, Serbia. The European Union says, no, that's not acceptable. So, you know, these kinds of Cold War institutions, these imperial centralized governments, like the European Union, <coughs> NATO is a military alliance, these should be abolished, ended, and instead have ongoing bilateral and multilateral negotiations. It can be through trade, trade groupings, uh, groups like the Asian uh, Investment Bank, the AIIB, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization shows an example of this. Uh, this is what Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy intended with the good neighbor policy toward South and Central America. So these kinds of multilateral organizations could be uh, brought into these economic development perspectives, and that would eliminate the need for the kind of military policy to collect debts, which is at the center of the aggression of the transatlantic empire. Okay, so here's his second question. He says, you mentioned that LaRouche had forecast the collapse of the Soviet Union after they declined his offer of joint cooperation on the Strategic Defense Initiative, and that only a couple of years later he forecasted the collapse of the Berlin Wall. What distinguishes LaRouche's unique method of forecasting from other political analysts? And how was he able to foresee this while everyone else thought differently? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. You know, in terms of the, the question of the Soviet Union, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, there, there were many people who saw the strains in the Soviet Union between the so-called consumer economy and the military. And there were people who were warning that these strains were uh, impelling Russia toward military action in, in Europe. And that was part of the argument for bringing in the uh, missiles into West Germany and so on, and the, the escalation of the military confrontation. Uh, now, what LaRouche was identifying as the driver in, in the Soviet Union, uh, which led to the adoption of the Ogarkov Doctrine, which was a, basically an atomic, biological, chemical warfare plan for overrunning Western Europe, was the recognition that in order to keep up some semblance of, of military parity, the Soviets had to undermine whatever they were trying to do for their civilian economy and orient all their investment into the, or much of their investment into the military economy. Now, what LaRouche uh, understood was, was a problem with that is not just that you can't starve a civilian population for a war. I mean, empires have done that in the past. But that the, the assessment of Western intelligence analysts that the Soviet Union was militarily capable of winning such a war uh, was what LaRouche was addressing with the Strategic Defense Initiative. That if the United States concentrated on developing these new uh, physical principles of electron beam technology, of, of these kinds of particle beam weapons, 
that not only would they have a military capability that would be difficult for the Soviets to, to counter, which is one of the reasons the Soviets rejected it, but also the civilian spin-offs would ensure that the United States and the countries that are connected to the United States would have an economic boom. And that this would be something that would be a selling point to the Soviets. Join us in this and we'll help you with your economy. That was LaRouche's idea. And the rejection of that made it clear that people who were running policy, including Yuri Andropov, who we've identified as very close to being a British agent of influence. And then when Gorbachev came in and, and tried to carry out structural reforms without addressing the elephant in the room, which was the military budget, that it was clear that they could not sustain either the military capability or the civilian economic capability. And that's what led to his forecast. Now, other people claim they forecast it based on the uh, parameters I mentioned before, the, the difficulty of sustaining a consumer economy with a war drive. But I think more to the point is LaRouche's understanding of uh, the relationship between scientific advance and physical economy. That moving into these areas of frontiers of science create new capabilities for not just military and industrial technologies, but for the advancement of the capabilities of your population. And they require what we saw in the late 50s, early 60s in the United States, an emphasis on science education, which led to the advances in the economy, which continued through the 60s and 70s. The, these kinds of uh, ideas go back to what Hamilton wrote about in his various reports to the Congress, the report on manufacturers, the report on public credit and so on, how it is that you build a nation and what LaRouche's appreciation of what Lincoln did with the Transcontinental Railroad System, what FDR did with the great projects, the TVA, the Hoover Dam, the Bonneville Power, and so, and so on, that these the rural electrification, these kinds of investments are what build nations. And this is what was transmitted by Lyndon and Helga Zepp LaRouche to very interested parties in China. When China was moving through the Deng Xiaoping period, moving into the uh, development, the early development of what became the Belt and Road Initiative, it was these kinds of ideas about the integration of science and physical economy and credit policy, which played a role in shaping the uh, 2013 announcement by Xi Jinping of the global side of the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is what, if you want to know why it is the oligarchy hates Putin and hates Xi Jinping, it's because of their own commitment to this approach to science, economics, and strategic policy. They see in their policy pronouncements the echo of what LaRouche was telling people in the United States in the 70s and 80s. And I, I think the incredible venom against Putin, the, the lies that are told about him, the lies about the Chinese, are designed to create an enemy image
Are we frozen? I think he froze up there. Uh, maybe we have we lost the connection. If so, I've got a couple of things that we can go to. Um, guess what? We're work wait, wait, working on that connection. Let me just point out, uh, because we were about to do this anyway, that uh, the former Attorney General of the United of the United States, Ramsey Clark, had stated uh, back in 1993. Uh, when he uh, began to represent Lyndon LaRouche, had been begun to represent Lyndon LaRouche and, on his appeal. Lyndon LaRouche was in jail from 1989 to 1994. Uh, we can bring up uh, the picture of Mr. Clark and also the quote that, uh, that the LaRouche case represented, as he called it, a broader range of deliberate and systematic misconduct and abuse of power over a longer period of time in an effort to destroy a political movement and leader than any other federal prosecution in my time or to my knowledge. Now leave that graphic up for a moment because I want to point a few things out to people. A broader range of deliberate and systematic misconduct and abuse of power over a longer period of time. Now, now that's important for people to know because that, uh, process around Lena LaRouche extended from a minimum of the period of 1968 until his uh, uh, incarceration in 1989 on January 27th. So it was a 30-year uh, process uh, prior to uh, the time that uh, uh, Ramsey Clark got involved with it. So that's why he states that. In an effort to destroy a political movement and leader, uh, than any other federal prosecution in my time. Now, so, okay, that's fine. Now, what was his time? His time was the time of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, you can take it down now. Uh, and uh, what's important to us sort of understand that this was the time of King, Malcolm X, the FBI, and what was called COINTELPRO, uh, something that was discovered in 1971 because of the raid of an FBI office that has had anti-war activists in media Pennsylvania not raided the FBI office, we still wouldn't know about the counterintelligence program of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or might not, might still not know. And so the LaRouche movement's uh, first uh, running afoul of the FBI and all of that happened during that period. In fact, back in 1970, 51 years ago, uh, members of the movement were accused of a bomb plot, which was then uh, eventually summarily thrown out as a result of attention being called to it by various people, including people who would later certainly not be friends of Lyndon LaRouche, like Noam Chomsky and others. Uh, and then in the period of 73-74, as was later found for three Freedom of Information Act documents, uh, the FBI was involved in sending what they called blind blind memoranda to the Communist Party of the United States. What that meant was that they had agents in the Communist Party of the United States about uh, eliminating Lenin LaRouche uh, during that period. So the thing that uh, is the reason for referencing this is that the reason that people are having such a problem getting anything done about Julian Assange or the reason that people are having such a problem even conceiving of how Ed, Edward Snowden ever comes home 
And the reason that people are having such a problem getting hold of these various documents and so on from intelligence and military intelligence and so on uh, has to do with this process, which the prosecution of Lyndon LaRouche uh, embodies. So when we talk about this idea of the year of LaRouche, for those of you who are concerned about what happened on January 6th from either point of the political uh, side of the political spectrum, as they call it, um, for those of you who are concerned about the overreach of the surveillance state, for those of you who are concerned about the fact that Silicon Valley more and more turns out to be really an extension of what you used to call the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the LaRouche case and the investigation of it, and by the way, the release of the documents pertaining to this case, which have never been released uh, uh, in, 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 the in the way in which they uh, should have been over the past five decades, that's the place to start. It's a way of getting a flank because what will happen if you do that is you will, you will, you will discover that that case is considered to be way more dangerous than Julian Assange. Let me repeat that. The LaRouche case is considered inside of the intelligence establishment to be way more dangerous than the case of Julian Assange. I'm not saying anything about the obvious criminality of the Julian Assange case and whether or not he should be released from, 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 from prison. I mean, that should be um, uh, a cause that every human being who's thinking should, should adopt. I'm merely trying to point out that there's a precedent for these things. Uh, and so that... Uh, that's something that we have to, to consider. I understand we're still having problems with the Harley uh, uh, connection, uh, but we have a couple of uh, other questions. And so I, I think what we should do here is there is a, uh, I, I guess I'll have to take those if we don't have any way of correcting that at the moment. Um, let me take one which just came in uh, and I'm looking at you know text messages and so on. So forgive me for living looking down and so on, but Okay, here's one that asks, given the growing youth movement that we are creating around the world and the newly released Leonora magazine around education, how would you suggest we go about recruiting educators to Lynn's idea of an educational system? Uh, actually, we might be able to get uh, Anastasia up on the, on the line. I don't know if that's possible uh, to answer this question. Uh, uh, I, given that what's happened with Harley, but I'll start on this so that people just understand what this refers to. Um, and if we can get a graphic also of the Leonora magazine, uh, that might be good too. Uh, this is a magazine which is the successor to an earlier magazine called Fidelio. It's the second edition of that magazine. Uh, it is a, um, uh, it's a magazine of science, culture, and education and politics. Uh, it's, it's in the tradition of literary journals that have been released at different times in American history, uh, but it's specifically designed for the recruitment of young people uh, in the context of this combination of world crises. And it does, in fact, in fact, center itself around many of the documents that were written by Lyndon LaRouche. Um, and, I, and I guess the, the, the thing that should be said is let's let's take let's take an example of uh, of, of, of what it is we're concerned about. You know, we're uh, presented with the problem of trying to give people uh, a real education on matters that they have been unprepared to think about at all. Take, for example, the recent actions in the Indo-Pacific theater, as they're called, in which 
Australia, the United States, Japan, and supposedly India are supposed to play a role in intervening against China on questions involving, uh, in specific, uh, right now, Taiwan, uh, the issue of whether or not Taiwan would be re-recognized as a separate national entity, in, in essence, uh, in various ways by the United States. Now, of course, this is a problematic thing for people to think about who are 30 years old or, or younger. Uh, why would they know that, for example, Japan uh, had uh, Taiwan as a colony from about 1894-95 until 1945, the end of the Second World War? Uh, how would people know that? How would people understand the reality of what's going on in Hong Kong, which the British dominated as a colony for 99 years, just taking it from China during the period of the Opium Wars, uh, and and just and and even a slight yes, that that period, uh, you know, and 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 that when you talk about the present conflict in Hong Kong. You're talking about something which is a, the product of stay-behind counterintelligence operations by the British colonial office, as opposed to the lack of democracy being given to the people of Hong Kong by the, quote, communist Chinese. How do, how do people even get a chance to know that? So, so that one of the elements is that you, you instead of, quote, lamenting the bad education, now that's pretty silly. You have to come up with ways to actually make this available. And so one of the things we've done is we've created this publication called uh, Leonora, a Leonora named after the heroine of Beethoven's opera Fidelio. Uh, and this is a, ma a magazine of science and culture. I think we have Anastasia here so she can say more about the actual contents of the present issue and what we're trying to do with that. Oh, there you are. So you were able to answer this question. I don't know who sent it in, but uh, it's probably a good time for you to take it up. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, we're really at a moment when uh, folks are incredibly open to uh, fresh and new ideas. I mean, just about everything has failed right now. And I think taking uh, this, this Leonora, which we composed, to take people through what does it mean to actually have an aesthetical education. This is what Friedrich Schiller, if you guys go to the Schiller Institute and, you know, look at um, what Friedrich Schiller talked about in his aesthetical letters of how do you actually organize uh, someone so they can have uh, a moral output in the world. How do you actually make that happen? And uh, so what we go through in this issue, uh, you know, looking at Mr. Lyndon LaRouche, he actually had a whole conversation with uh, the the president of the Federation of Teachers Association on what that curriculum could look like in the United States. Uh, we're looking at Helga Zepp LaRouche, who had a whole um, speech uh, going after uh, romanticism and how Friedrich Schiller went after the romantics. Um, we have two very good articles from Lainey Rubenstein and um, Richard Black, who uh, they situate this aesthetical educational system and then show, in fact, that you have the nation of China 
they, they are actually attempting to do this. They're actually working on this. They're looking at Humboldt. They're looking at Friedrich Schiller. They're looking at incorporating their own classical compositions within their, their own culture, their, their unique culture with Confucius uh, and, and bringing that to their youth. Uh, so it's really quite amazing. And then um, there's a very special interview in there just to give you a sense of how this educational system can work. Uh, if it was, if we had a truthful one, that you can take people who are supposedly the, you know, of the worst walks of life, the most terrible people on the planet, um, you know, in, in terms of the prison system, right? That's what you hear people talk about. And uh, there's this wonderful uh, uh, opera house called Heartbeat that we, we had interviewed in Leonora uh, by Mike Billington and Stuart Battle. Um, how they were able to take prisoners and teach them how to sing. And then they had them sing Fidelio's Prisoner's Chorus, which if you're not aware, if you don't know what that opera is, I suggest you watch it. It's Beethoven's most beautiful piece, in my opinion. <laughs> um, and what the uh, our magazine is named after, Leonora, the, the, the lead character uh, in the story. Um, but she... Uh, uh, this uh, prisoner's chorus, when actual prisoners sang this, they wrote letters back to um, the director who he was kind enough to give us uh, a, a number of these letters. And they were just describing that this is the first time in their life that they've ever experienced something beautiful, that they didn't know the world was beautiful. And this completely radically changed the way that they viewed themselves and their relationship to the world. So imagine if, you know, we can do that with every person on the planet, anybody that we meet, how that's going to change not only their, their view of themselves, but their actions in the world, how they're going to act upon the world. And um, I, I think that that's actually where we're at right now. Uh, so you can definitely take this magazine uh, and go out and, uh, you know, take it to your professor, take it to your teacher, take it to, um, you know, your other students in your, your classroom and say, hey, this is what it means to be human. We need to create this human curriculum. We can have a lot of fun, um, you know, really, I guess you could say, turning over the tables of um, this terrible educational system we've had. Uh, at least here in the United States that I know of. I mean, it's terrible. They really are just teaching you how to regurgitate information. I mean, we got phones for those, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but why do I want to be a, a Google uh, search engine, you know, and just regurgitate information? What about at having actual knowledge and fighting for the truth? Like that's that's really what we've got to to organize for right now. So I would say to this, um, and anybody else who's having this kind of question of what we can do uh, to create an educational curriculum, you know, take this Leonora magazine, organize with the Schiller Institute, the LaRouche organization, and let's have a lot of fun causing some trouble around this. Yeah, I want you to stay up actually on the stage with us for a minute, but before we, uh, uh, and I think Harley's gotten back, but I want you to say something about the cover, why you chose that painting uh, on the cover. I believe that's an Eastman Johnson, I think. I recognize that. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, we chose this cover, uh, which is, uh, it was actually really moving to me. We had a few ideas of of the cover, but 
Um, this painting was done right after uh, Lincoln freed the slaves, right after um, the Emancipation Proclamation. And if you can imagine at that time how controversial it would be to paint a black man, a freed slave, reading a book. And you can see in the back that there's um, a little bit of blue, which um, indicates that he was probably a Union soldier. So he fought in the Civil War to gain the rights of freedom, uh, to gain to gain his freedom. And it's just, it's a very beautiful expression of, uh, of this human outlook that this is not, you know, ha having an education, having the ability to be creative is something which is human, it's ennobling. Um, and I mean, just thinking about like, in particular, when an artist does something like this, but that, that has such a huge impact on your culture. Imagine if we were to do something like that now Right. If we had a number of artists who weren't just slapping paint on a canvas or busting rhymes and their their music, but were actually trying to capture the problems in their own society right now and shift it to something beautiful. So I'd like to, to put that as a challenge uh, in thinking about this cover. Yeah, and just before we go back to Harley, I just want to point out what the implications are also of what you just said, because in the United States right now, there's a rethinking around the teaching of history, not merely in reaction to the particular politicization, if you want to call it that, uh, of, of history. But uh, as one example, I just show there's a book called The Indispensables. I don't think people can. Yeah, you can say it. See there mm -hmm. by Patrick uh, K. O'Donnell. Uh, and he, he writes, it's, it's subtitled, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. And what he tells the story of there is the Marblehead Fisherman. This is a story that began from Massachusetts. What's, irrele what's relevant is that although people believe that the first Rhode Island regiment was the first uh, unit, uh, which was formed in 1778, uh, which involved black troops fighting for the American revolutionary cause and therefore was the first, you know, sort of in, partially integrated unit. It's not true. The Marblehead fishermen were that uh, and they were formed by Colonel John Glover. Uh, there were over 500 to 600 of them that were involved, about 900 of them altogether involved in the war. Uh, about 10 percent of them were African and African-American, African and African-American, which is a difference. Because so many, several of them were simply free African sailors. And then you had former slaves, black slaves from America, and some people who had originally been slaves, but had been free for 40, 50 years, which is another story mm -hmm. that people never even think about in the, in the United States, about how that really evolved. So these people were in on the ground floor of the American Revolution, fighting for the revolutionary cause. There were also a lot of black uh, Americans uh, for black people from the colonies who fought for the British because they were they were promised freedom and the British were trying to inst instigate slave revolts. But there were many, many people in the thousands that fought on the other side. Now, this had been, generally speaking, either if not 
denied, ignored in American history. And what you're pointing out there with that painting by Eastman Johnson and, and what was being done by the painter, which, which is that that is to do that painting at that time in that way was a polemical act. It wasn't political as though it were simply a political cartoon. Yeah. Because he's looking at the issue of literacy, he's looking at the idea of the development of the mind. The jacket is on the, you know, is is there, but it's it's behind him, and he's taking a moment because the true freedom, yes, it may come through force of arms, but it's got to come through the force of the mind. So I just wanted to point that out and say that, you know, what you're doing with this magazine, and we want to encourage everybody to, to uh, subscribe to it. Um, I guess it's something like five dollars a month or something like that. Uh, that that uh, that's the case, right? And they can they can get at that. And people who need more more information on some of the other activity or writing for the magazine or distributing it, that will equally be be important. You also have a a major article by Lyndon LaRouche in that magazine, correct? Correct. And what's that called? That is. Pull it up. called Restore Classical Ed Education to the Secondary Classroom. And this was a um, back and forth that Mr. LaRouche was having with the president of the Federation of the Te of Teacher Teachers Association at the time. Okay, very good. So Harley, you're back with us. Is that the case? Did you make it back? Oh, <laughs> oh there you are. My, my system crashed, but it's back up, so here I am. Okay, great, great. So the question I was about to ask you, which came in from Cade, uh, is what's the principle that determines the validity of a call for independence? Those sounding the war drums over Ukraine and Taiwan will attempt to draw an historical link to the American Revolution. Hmm. To play naive, what essentially dis distinguishes those situations from our war for independence? Hmm. Well, off the top of my head, what I would say is that the question that is different from the time of the American Revolution is that those are countries, as you pointed out in the case of Ukraine and in the case of Taiwan, were part of the countries, part of Russia and part of China for centuries. They were not, uh, you know, were, were not a newly colonized area. That is, Taiwan has, has always been considered part of, I don't know if it's always, but has been part of China for a very, very long time and is recognized as such by uh, most of the world. That's what the so-called One China policy is about. And the idea of independence is a deliberate provocation against China because it comes not so much from the people of Taiwan, but from the outside. Now, the Ukraine situation, you know, I, I can't say I, I fully understand the, well, I'll say this, the, the whole point of Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is independent. It was a sovereign state. Its sovereignty was taken over with the regime change coup in 2014, the Maidan coup that was run from the outside. 
you know, there look, there were demonstrations in Ukraine, there are demonstrations in all over the world in that period from the so-called Arab Spring forward. But what characterized what happened in Ukraine was Victoria Nuland's bragging that over a period of years, the U.S. spent $5 billion to create an, an Ukrainian opposition. And George Soros poured in money. There was backing from various other groups, including the National Endowment for Democracy. So there were Ukrainians who were out in the streets demanding more independence, more freedom, but not enough to topple the government without the intervention of Western forces. And the same thing is going on in, in Taiwan. The, the, the idea in Taiwan of an independence movement uh, is not a, a gigantic force, except for the fact that it's being played by a bunch of warmongering idiots in the U.S. Congress and allies in other parts of the world who are trying to create the idea of an independence movement for the sake of disrupting the development of China, disrupting, in the case of Ukraine, Russian security. And as we pointed out from the maps and, and other points, uh, and you're not just talking about an independent Ukraine, because Ukraine had a certain amount of independence under Yanukovych. Yanukovych was trying to decide in 2013 whether to accept the offer of alliance with um, the European Union. And he was inclined toward having a continued relationship with Russia as well as possibly going into the European Union. But when Yanukovych decided against that, against joining the European Union, that's when the Maidan forces uh, uh, rose up. And the actual story of what was behind this has not been told in the West. You know, the shooting on Maidan Square was not done by the Yanukovych security forces. There were some shooting back and forth, but there was generally acknowledged a third force. You have the famous uh, captured phone call between uh, Newland and the ambassador of the United States to Ukraine at the time, where they were talking about who would replace Yanukovych. And Newland said, Yats is our man. That is, this was not an independence movement in Ukraine. It was an operation run from the outside. So I think that's that's the basic difference between that and the American Revolution. Okay. Um, now, uh, this is from Jose. I, and what you went and it's actually related to another question that we had much earlier, which was sort of a mixture. But uh, let me go to his first, and I'll reference the other. What you went through with Russia, the Soviet Union, and the expansion of NATO was very useful because now I have a better understanding of how the conflict of today started, uh, you know, from years ago. And then can you explain the issue of Taiwan and China and how that's being used as a political tool to incite a new war? Now, earlier, Harley, there had been this, which was sort of more like a discussion that had been going on, which is was this how is it possible uh to have national sovereignty when so many nations don't have nuclear weapons 
that the idea is that it was being discussed is, well, if you look at Russia or India or Japan or even or China, uh, these are all nuclear powers. And then when you have people who don't have it, you know, then they may try to assert national sovereignty, but then they are frankly subordinate because they don't have the technologies either of war or advanced technologies. Uh, so, so that's the, I just put that in because I think those things are related in one general sense, but I wanted to make sure I, uh, came back to that. So go ahead. Well, there, there is the argument, for example, that the Iranians might be making in terms of their own nuclear program, which is not, was not started as a nuclear weapons program, but as a nuclear energy program. But looking at what happened to Libya, for example, where the Libyans gave up their weapons program, gave up their biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons program uh, under pressure and threats from the West, but their willingness to go along with that. And then what happened? They were, they were still overthrown. They were still destabilized. There was still a regime change coup and the, the murder of the president of the country, Gaddafi. So one could make the argument that the only way to ensure that you have the right to make sovereign decisions is either to, well, it would, would be to have your own independent nuclear capability. But that's a, a foolish idea simply because a smaller country trying to embark on a nuclear program is not going to be able to fight against one of the great nuclear powers, especially if that nuclear power intends to keep that country subordinate. National sovereignty is based on principles of international law and not who has the weapons to enforce it. The rules-based order, in contrast, is based on who has the military force and the willingness to use it to impose their will. And I think what you tend to get caught up in with this is the idea that the, if you have the weapons, you can maintain your security. This is somewhat similar to people who simply say that the way to keep the United States from becoming a, a total tyranny is for individuals to be able to have weapons. Now, the original idea of the Second Amendment was not that everyone's going to have their own capability to, to shoot at each other in the case of a civil war. The way you have a secure nation is you have an economic policy that, that guarantees everyone an opportunity, guarantees every child an education, and that has a sense of, of security in the future by acting in concert with other nations. So ultimately, if you're in an arms race, if you're in the idea that security depends on arms and the weapons you can produce, you have no security. Because unless you're going to use them, in which case you risk being obliterated or obliterating the world, there's no security in that. So sovereignty has to be a, a, realized on a different level, on the level of uh, actual intellectual commitment to the development of the entirety of mankind. And this is where we see the problem in the world today. This is the problem of geopolitics. If you define people, and this is a key to Lyndon LaRouche's ideas, if you define nations as collections of people who have their own autarkic systems, their own desires, 
and their right to be left alone and, and pursue them and reject the idea that there are common uh, interests, a general welfare. If you reject that, then you're ultimately in the Hobbesian universe where any country that does better is a threat to, to your country, which is in fact the argument against the Belt and Road Initiative. The idea that China has eliminated poverty in China, that China is developing its economic power. Why should that be a threat to other countries? That in fact would make China more secure and less likely to want war. So, you know, we, we have to overturn this Hobbesian thinking, this Darwinian law of the jungle. Uh, and that was what was done in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia the recognition that every nation is entitled to sovereignty within its own borders, that nations must not interfere in the internal affairs of other nations, and then that you look to others with the idea that you want to treat them as you would like to be treated. The application of the, the golden rule to statecraft, that was the idea of our founding fathers. And that's implicit in the idea of a security architecture which can actually protect the interests of smaller nations, that they don't have to submit based on force of arms, but can collaborate based on mutual benefit. And so that's the shift in thinking that's required. And that I, I think is at the heart of, of LaRouche's ideas uh, and the, this concept of, of Pope Paul VI, that development is the name, the new name of peace. You're not gonna have peace unless each country has a right to its full economic development for the benefit of its people. Okay, um, I think we have really kind of a, well, two things. One is a final question, and then something I want to get a response from you from, which is uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, New Year message. But before we go to that, there's a question here says, this apparently just came in, that uh, Tony Blair has been awarded the highest uh, knighthood by the Queen, the Order of the Garter. Uh, so now the questioner is asking, you know, we hear about the Privy Council and the Order of the Garter. What's with these titles and what what does this mean? So that's your question. Well, it's simple. It's just recognition that Tony Blair has been working for the interests of the monarchy in the city of London his whole career. You know, his creation of the so-called Third Way has proven to be an economic disaster for the United Kingdom. His strategic policy is based on his uh, adamant insistence that we have to get rid of the peace of Westphalia and instead have an imposed order from the outside, which is essentially the modern, uh, modern version of the British Empire. So the, the order of the garter being given to him is sort of belated recognition of what we've already known for many years. He's an evil, miserable excuse for a human being who sold his soul many, many years ago to the uh, order of the British Empire. And in fact, he's a war criminal. And there are many, many parts of the world where people would like to see him brought before the International Criminal Court to stand trial for the act, for his activities in, in including in, in provoking wars in the Middle East. 
So the next section is uh, we're going to refer to a portion of the speech that was done by Vladimir Putin for uh, New Year's. Uh, given that there's been these discussions with President Biden, in fact, one just a couple of days ago, there'll be discussions uh, otherwise. Uh, we're sort of in a circumstance which at least uh, uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov referred to as comparable to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. I don't, I don't know that most Americans know that Russian officials are referring to the present circumstance in that way. And those who live through that have some idea what the implications of that may be in the Russian mind. So I want to um, refer, uh, bring this up. I think we can bring it up online, part of it. Uh, we're just going to do some excerpts from it. So he said, uh, addressing the citizens of Russia, citizens of Russia, friends, the year 2021 is drawing to a close. Very soon, time will take us from the past into the future. True, this is something that happens every day, minute and second. But we hear this continuous passage of time most clearly when we welcome the new year and look forward to it as an important marker in our lives. Do we actually have the text? Can we run that as I'm re reading? If not, I'll just continue to read. We are united in the hope that changes for the better lie ahead, but we know that they cannot be detached or isolated from the events that unfolded in the outgoing year. We faced enormous challenges, but we learned to live in these harsh circumstances and solve complex problems. Our solidarity made this possible. Together, we continued to combat the dangerous pandemic sweeping every continent, which shows no signs of receding. This elusive disease claimed tens of thousands of lives. Everyone who lost loved ones, please accept my words of sincere support. Of course, many issues remain unresolved, but we did well this year. Most of the credit goes to you, the citizens of Russia. This is the result of your hard work, friends. Everyone in their own way strove to do their duty to do even more than seemed possible and to help those who had it particularly hard. My heartfelt thanks goes out to all of you. In challenging times like these, it is particularly important to be creative and committed to your plans no matter what, while working for the benefit of society and your native country. As we ring in the new year, we hope that it will bring new opportunities for us. Of course, we hope luck will be on our side, but we understand that making our dreams reality primarily depends on us, on what we prioritize in our daily lives on our ability to commit to our projects and achieve concrete and tangible results. But the real magic of the new year is that it opens our hearts to empathy and trust, generosity and mercy. Wherever you may be during these minutes with your family and friends or in the squares of your beloved cities, you will hear these warm and sincere wishes. I am pleased to join in these wishes and to wish a happy new year to those who serve in the military or another capacity, who take care of the ill, who are on active duty at their combat post or enforcing law and order. The operation of major transport routes and a large number of plants and critical services goes on uninterrupted. Hundreds of thousands of our citizens are employed in these efforts. Thank you for your responsible work, which is so important for the country and society. Friends, the new year is about to begin in a few seconds. 
Many families, including our compatriots outside of Russia, will offer the traditional New Year's toast, Happy New Year, may it be filled with new fortune. These simple words have a special meaning to us because they are passed down from generation to generation. My sincere best wishes and above all for good health. From that, success in your work, studies, creative endeavors, and favorite pursuits will follow. May every home have as many joyful moments as possible. May there be new families with new children. May they grow up to be healthy and intelligent, honest and free. May love fill every heart and inspire us all to achieve our goals and scale the greatest depths for the sake of our loved ones and for the sake of our only country, our great motherland. Happy New Year, friends. And that is what Putin had to say. Um, I don't have the Xi Jinping uh, text. We weren't able to get that for this, but just wanted to see, Harley, if you have any response to that as we go to our kind of final remarks here. Well, I, I think that's what you would expect from a leader. And it, it reflects the idea of someone who is looking across the vast expanse of history and the vast expanse of the country and trying to encourage everyone in Russia to approach the new year with optimism. You know, there was, there was no need for him to talk about the discussions with Biden or the situation in Ukraine. That's been done repeatedly. I mean, he had just the other day his annual uh, address to the nation, his uh, press conferences, where he's laid out the strategic picture that we've been talking about. But I think, you know, his, his comments are to inspire people to a uh, higher quality of, of love and human kindness. And it certainly goes against the picture you get of Putin in the Western media. You know, I would encourage people to, to read it on when you when you have a chance and think about it and realize that in the same way as John Kennedy announced this or spoke of this in his, his famous speech in I think it was American University in 1963, that we have a great deal in common with people, including people in so-called adversarial nations. They all have the same goals, the same desires for the improvements for their children and so on. We are all human. And if we can see the humanity in people, even those with whom we have disagreements, then we can have an honest dialogue and solve problems. So, you know, I salute President Putin for his comments. And I think those reflect a, a heartfelt wish and hopefully the discussions that are underway from the United States side will also be done with compassion and, and the desire for solutions as opposed to imposing our military power to uh, realize the so-called rules-based order. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Harley, for joining us today. I want to thank uh, all the questioners. I want to thank Anastasia for pinch hitting there at the moment that you're, uh, uh, you, you crashed and burned and then were risen from the dead like a phoenix from the ashes, sort of like the new year itself. Okay, the new year, so, that's right. <laughs> right, so, okay, and we'll see you. You're going to have some other assignments because it looks like we're going to, we have several young people who are beginning to ask a lot of questions. And it's interesting to see that happening, uh, including on this program. So thank you very much. 
as we go to our close, what we did, someone did send me uh, some of the, uh, the text, actually, of uh, Xi Jinping's speech. The two sections of this I'm going to choose to uh, quote from uh, as a text message that I'm looking at. So you'll see me looking down. In my phone calls, this is Xi Jinping, and virtual meetings with foreign leaders and heads of international organizations, I have heard many times plaudits for China's fight against COVID-19 and contribution to the global COVID response. To date, China has provided 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines to more than 120 countries and international organizations. Only through unity, solidarity, and cooperation can countries around the world write a new chapter in building a community with a shared future for mankind. The bell is about to ring for the new year. As we speak, three Chinese astronauts are on duty in outer space. Our fellow compatriots overseas are still working very hard. Our people posted to to diplomatic missions and businesses abroad as well as overseas Chinese students are bravely holding on. And our numerous dream chasers are keeping up their good work. I salute all your great efforts and extend to you best wishes for the new year. Let us all work together for a shared future. May our country enjoy prosperity and our people live in peace and harmony. I just want to call attention to two elements of this as we go to the close. Uh, because of what we opened it with, with, with Lyndon LaRouche, if you go back to the first segment and you look at what he said, he outlined a program for 2022. That's right, for 2022. He talked about thermonuclear fusion power. This is a frontier area of technology in which the United States was the leading nation until in, in, into the 1970s. And then we began to dismantle uh, and, and to deindustrialize um, our fundamental scientific capabilities. And that is where every one of our problems has come from, not merely because it was a lack of science, that it's not the problem, but because of the cultural paradigm shift that happened in the United States that began to tell people we don't have to produce for ourselves. We're in a post-industrial society. We're better than that. And what that did was it began to limit the frontiers of the human mind, the great frontier that John Kennedy spoke about when he came into office in his inaugural speech in January of 1961, that the new frontier was, yes, it was space, but it was the notion of being able to think about using planet Earth as a base of operations for the extraterrestrial imperative of mankind and of creativity. The James Webb Telescope, of course, uh, which is just beginning to unfold and I think has now sent its first images back, uh, is itself an expression of that earlier commitment of the United States. Yes, it's the present commitment because it was seen through, it was followed through, and that's very important. But who can say that in the classrooms of America, as it was true in 1963 or 64, that there are tens of thousands of students that are thinking seriously about the idea of being either astronauts or being part of the astrophysics and that part of space program. Who can even say that there are a lot of people, though there has been a shift into people talking about being doctors, but who's you know, even talking to people about fields like optical biophysics or the need to figure out nonlinear forms of computer modeling to figure out how to tra- track infectious diseases. Uh, this has dropped out of the consideration. Matter of fact, it appears that we were looking into a, an abyss uh, yesterday at the close of 2021. But this morning, today, uh, as we featured it in uh, Lyndon LaRouche's remarks, in terms of that frontier of technology, and then uh, he addressed the issue of the West and the so-called and the droughts circumstance in the West, something that JFK talked about extensively in 1962 and 63. 
and have proposals for, which at that time were appropriate, called the North American Water and Power Alliance. Uh, these things were anticipated by JFK. They were all there in the space program. And the fact is that the power that went into the space program, not merely in terms of the advanced ideas uh, and the, the technology and engineering, but the power was the vision of the future that informed the present on Earth. That was the concept of the space program. It was never something about, oh, we have all these problems on Earth. How come, what are we dealing with space? Let, let me try to clarify why I'm saying this. You're always in space. Take a look at the planet, which is hurtling at 12 and a half miles per second through the universe. There are all the cycles that we aren't going to talk about. You're never not in space. So you're, you're living in, a, in an illusion when you think that you're apart from these matters. Just like if you think that you have nothing to do with what the, your government does day to day, you're living in an illusion. And if you go to another country, uh, which is being uh, affected by what your government is doing, they'll ask you, why are you doing this to us? So, so the point here is that there is no way to, to separate oneself from the human race. The pandemic has made that clear. And the admonition by both Putin and Xi Jinping, and something that, of course, has been said by President Biden as well, is that there is one approach that has to be taken by the human race as a whole. But there's no room anymore to be reluctant about that. Lyndon LaRouche and what he did as an individual in his pursuit of a form of self-education, which was the basis for self-government. That was what he was essentially had as his primary message to the American people is you have to know what the policy is. You have, may even have to invent the policy. You certainly have to know how your what your role is, is, is in implementing a policy that actually allows the United States to march forward into the future without the need for uh, the forms of arbitrary uh uh, uh, force uh, that have become uh, identified with this country largely through, truthfully, uh, actions taken by intelligence agencies and others that never consult the American people. Nonetheless, they, that kind of criminal enterprise is not and in no way has anything to do with the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is yours. It was something that was given to the people of the United States. And they are to protect it. And it is not a matter of protecting it by getting your gun and going to protect it. Go get a book and protect it. Go get the Federalist Papers and read them. Learn the Declaration of Independence. Recite it. Recite the preamble to the Constitution and then understand something about why this is a nation which was more literate than any nation in human history when it was founded. That's right. As opposed to what you're told by the 1619 Project or the, all these other things. Yes, and there was slavery, and that was a problem, and those people were not literate by, by and large. But when we talk about the issue of the founding of the country, it's documents like the Federalist Papers or the Declaration of Independence and all of the studies that went into it. And then the pamphleteers, the great pamphleteers that came along, like Thomas Paine and others that were born out of that. And then the number of people that this country, in one sense, either attracted or sponsored from France or Poland or Germany or Ireland, uh, who were all part of that, uh, and, and continued that tradition in the aftermath of the, uh, the victory, the military victory of 17, uh, 76 to 83. So, so this is the actual tradition that Lyndon LaRouche not only represented, he amplified it, he also advanced it. This, of course, is denied 
to Americans. He's considered to be, uh, you know, none of what I just said uh, in the so-called quote mainstream. But then what has the mainstream led us to? Look at the number of COVID cases. Look at the level of illiteracy. Look at this big campaign for legalization of drugs. Look at the absurdity called the merrily of Bill de Blasio in the most important city, one of the most important cities in the, in the world, what he did to it over the last eight years. So that's what the mainstream does. It, it would be better for people to actually uh, cleanse themselves uh, in, 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 a, in a stream which is not the mainstream. And that's in the ideas on the outlook of people like, like Lyndon LaRouche uh, and those people that are associated with him, those people that were also in discussion with him in other nations, uh, to uh, return to the idea of self-government. And that's what we're asking, and that's what we see as the year of LaRouche. Um, I think that what Anastasia laid out concerning the, her magazine, uh, Leonora, uh, is a very particular avenue for young people uh, to, to, to use to become familiar with these ideas and to become familiar with the person of Lyndon LaRouche. And so that's what our commitment is. We're very happy to begin the year uh, with this uh, program and with this outlook. And we hope to see you uh, in battle with us throughout the rest of uh, 2022. So on behalf of the LaRouche organization and the Manhattan Project, I want to say good afternoon.